wanted to give another plug for this marriage conference. If you want to be married or are married uh, or know somebody that is married and want to counsel them or anything related to marriage, um, this, is, th- this guy's great. Paul Tripp, he's been up in this area before. He did a, a children's seminar a few years ago that a few of us went to. Uh, many of you have read some of his books, including How People Change. He was the co-author for that book. And I just couldn't recommend this more strongly. So please go to this marriage conference if you can. It's just right down the street there at Crossroads Church. And, uh, and we just wanted to partner with them in making that available to you. And then also, the open house is not at our house. So that may be confusing. Uh, but just so many of you wanted to see our pictures and hear our stories and so on about Africa that we're going to do it here. So just so that that's clear. Although we'll put a sign up on our front door for those of you who forget that. Okay, so we are in John chapter 2. I could not be having more fun with this series. This is just so fun to study these uh, accounts of Christ's life and to just be given the time that you allow me uh, to study this during the week and, and... So this, again, is one of those stories that I've heard uh, many, many times, and it's often referenced. Uh, This is the account of Jesus clearing the temple. This is usually uh, what people uh, quote or mention when they're angry, and they say, well, Jesus was angry, so I can be angry, and that is not how I'm going to preach this passage, so... In fact, I'm not even going to mention that again because that's totally absurd. Okay, so here we go. John chapter 2, verse uh, 12, and I'm going to go through about half of this account, make some comments, and then finish, finish it up toward the end here. But this, I hope you have as much fun as I have had here. Verse 12, after this, chapter 1, or uh, the wedding at Cana, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is the common thing to do. People from all over the country, Jews from all over the country, would get their families together, and they would go up to Jerusalem. It didn't matter where they were on the map. It didn't matter if they were coming from the north or the south, or if they were, I guess you wouldn't go down to Jerusalem anywhere because it's kind of up in the hills. But, but the idea was that we're going up to the, the place where God is. And so everybody goes up to Jerusalem, no matter where they're coming from, to celebrate many of the religious festivals throughout the year. And the most important one would have been this here celebration of Passover, uh, the celebration of the Exodus. Verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Uh, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Okay, so what's happening here? What is it that Jesus saw? He walks onto the temple complex, probably the outer section uh, where Gentiles were allowed to come. And here you had all these different stalls that had been set up some of them to sell animals, and others of them basically to provide currency exchange. So now why would they be doing that? They're coming from all over the country to Jerusalem, and what you do is you bring an offering with you. 
and you sacrifice this lamb in God's presence and you eat it with your family. You basically have this big party celebration uh, eating this lamb and this whole Passover meal in order to celebrate redemption, that, Jesus, that, that God saved the people from, uh, from Egypt during the time of the Exodus. Now, if you're coming long distance... It might not have been super convenient for you to try to get a lamb on the bus or the plane or whatever. And so how do you do this? Instead, what you do is you probably sell your lamb at home or maybe you're growing a crop or something like this. And so you gather your money and you come and you actually buy a lamb in Jerusalem. So this was standard practice. Now, it used to be that these lamb and pigeon and oxen sellers were across the Kidron Valley And presumably, Jesus wouldn't have been upset if that was the case. There isn't any indication that he's frustrated with their business practices or anything like this. The problem is that they're doing it in the temple. They've moved from across the Kidron Valley, and they're actually selling this stuff on the temple grounds. And Jesus seems to be upset about this because the temple is for something else. And so people are being distracted. You know, you're trying to concentrate on worship, and there's a goat in the background, or there's these loud... Uh, merchants that are kind of competing with each other and so on. Money changers. The other thing is that there was a temple tax that people had to pay. And unlike today, or maybe I should say even worse than today, there were all kinds of different currencies. And so people would come with different varieties of purity of silver, and they would come to the temple and they'd have to pay this tax, but the tax would only be acceptable if it was paid in the Tyrian coin, which was the purest form of silver. And so what people would do is they would have to take whatever they had and exchange it for a good coin, and that coin was pretty valuable, and so sometimes two or three families would go in together and they'd exchange their money. Again, they, they would take a pretty intense piece of that, a percentage of that, but again, it doesn't seem that Jesus is frustrated with their business practices Uh, What is frustrating is that they are doing it in a place where people are supposed to be worshiping. You come into the temple and you're supposed to be praying and you're preparing your heart, especially, you know, in the outer courts, you know, there should be quiet and there should be this reverence as you start approaching God. But instead, you've got all this chaos going on. And so Jesus comes in and just overturns everything, pours out the money, drives out the oxen, makes quite a scene. He does this again. Uh, toward the end of his ministry, right before he was killed. So the Gospel of John actually shows us two temple clearings. And um, so it's interesting that even though he does this here, that it didn't actually change their process. They didn't think, oh, well, the rabbi said that we should do this on the other side of the valley. Uh, but they were, they were right back there a couple of years later. Okay, so verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, uh, which is a quotation from Psalm 69, which is not generally or usually considered to be a messianic psalm, but the disciples realized either now or later, we're not told when, that this passion that Jesus has for worship being done right uh, is something that's very Davidic. And here he is, uh, here they are then applying this psalm written by David uh, here And it, it would be very interesting for you to look at Psalm 69 in the context of Psalm 69. You can do that on your own time. Um, but, uh, but this zeal for, for the house of God is coming out of serious pain that David has in Psalm 69. Okay, so I think there are a couple levels of meaning in this account. A couple of things going on. 
two things that the disciples needed to learn in order to worship God correctly. And I encourage you to write these down. Two things the disciples need to learn about God in order to worship him correctly. And the first concern seems to be this. As people were trying to pray and concentrate on the Lord, as they're trying to wield these crazy hearts that we have that go in many different directions, trying to prepare to encounter Almighty God, they're hearing bleeding goats and annoying shopkeepers. And again, it probably would have been fine with Christ. He probably wouldn't have overturned any of this stuff. It had been on the other side of the valley. Uh, uh, But it was not fine to put them in the place where worship was supposed to be happening. It was not fine to put them in the place to be specific where a person's heart might be distracted from worshiping God correctly. All of us are sinners. All of us get distracted so easily. We're just like little cats that see a thing on the wall and we go in this way and that direction. And the last thing you need is a worship environment that is distracting. As D.A. Carson wrote in his commentary in the book of John, this act of prophetic symbolism was a denunciation of worship that was not pure. It was a prophetic invitation to worship God from the heart without clamor or distracting influences. So the question that we just naturally should ask And sometimes we're a little bit too addicted to this idea that there has to be some application for us here. Sometimes it's just know this, know this about God. Uh, But but since we have this addiction, let's do it anyway and ask ourselves the question, well, how does this apply to me? What what should I do and how should I think about this? Uh, What are the distracting influences that might have slipped into our worship? Or more personally, what are some of the things that I do or don't do that are hurting the way that I worship God? And I think that's a very good question, and that would be a very good question, even not paying attention to what I say for the next few minutes in making some suggestions on that. It would be good for you to be thinking about that, because it will be different for different people. What is it that I need to do in order to tame my heart, which is easily distracted, even by something silly like a goat? Uh, what, what, what is it that I need to do to my heart in order to worship God in spirit and in truth? That's an excellent question, and I'm going to suggest just a few things, uh, but I actually think the main emphasis of this passage is something else, and so we'll get to that in a minute. But just since that is the surface application of this, uh, let's look at this a little bit. And a few, a few suggestions, um, and the first is consumerism. I think consumerism distracts us from worshiping the Lord. The first thing to see here that just falls off the bone of this passage with any amount of reflection is that there is a correct way to worship God. In fact, R.C. Sproul wrote this, God is particular about how he is to be approached in the sanctuary. Worship is not something we are allowed to do as we please. There is a correct way to worship God. And this offends our modern ideas about worship as a matter of taste. We live in a culture where our, if influ- our affluence has given us uh, the ability to be very picky about where we spend our money. And so we are bombarded with advertisements that appeal to our taste. And these principles have been adopted by churches and with mixed results. When taste becomes a relevant factor in the order of service, when taste becomes a relevant factor In the order of service, you might have a flash of connection with a subculture that hasn't been reached before, but you also have, I think, a lethal side effect. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, I think it's very good that we have different kinds of denominations because 
in different denominations all throughout the world and all throughout time, you have this beauty of people worshiping God in different ways. You have this, this cultural expression, this, these people who have lived in this certain area for so long and have learned how to express affection and awe in various ways. And you have these, these indigenous and beautiful ways of worshiping God in all these different ways, like almost a bouquet of worship happening all throughout America this morning and all throughout the world today and throughout church history. And so, again, on the one hand, I don't think you would want a flat style of worship for all time and all culture. But on the other hand, we observe many denominations and anti-denominations that exist from a consumer's desire to worship God as I want to. And this shifts the center of influence from God to the least spiritually mature people. If worship is about what I want, then it necessarily becomes less about what God requires. And this shift is subtle, and it is always denied, but it is not so easily addressed. The reason is because we are desperately wicked people who tend to live in error and love our errors, and therefore we ought to be very suspicious about our preferences and much more careful about things like submission and awe. And so here you have Jesus clearing the temple, at least in part, because God wants purity in worship. God wants to be worshipped correctly. And so we should reflect long and hard about how God wants to be worshipped and spend much less time worrying about what we want from worship. And so I think consumerism is one thing that hurts our worship in the modern Western world. Another thing that distracts us from worship is the fact that we are easily distracted. Short attention spans. How is it that we are to worship God, which inevitably requires scripture reading and prayer and concentration during worship services? How do we worship God when the very form of worship is something that we don't have much patience for? Nicholas Carr wrote a book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, and this is just one of drop-in-the-bucket examples that I could give you of how our, our brains have changed in our ability to pay attention and concentrate on things. He's writing about the Internet and how it has negatively influenced the way that he thinks. Listen to what Carr says. In the past, my mind would get caught up in the twists of the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration starts to drift after a page or two. I get fidgety. I lose the thread. I began to look for something else to do. And I feel like I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. And, he, and he's recognizing that the, that the Internet has been part of changing the way that his brain thinks. He says, the web has been a godsend to me as a writer. Research that once required days in the stacks or periodical rooms of libraries can now be done in minutes. A few Google searches, some quick clicks on hyperlinks, and I've got the telltale fact or the pithy quote I was after. Uh, and, but then after the honeymoon's basically over for him as, as a worshiper, who uses the internet, he says, uh, the flood of free content turned into a tidal wave. Headlines streamed around the clock through my Yahoo homepage and my RSS feed reader. One click on a link led to a dozen or a hundred more, and I started letting my newspaper and magazine subscriptions lapse. Who needed them? By the time the print editions arrived, due stamped or otherwise, I felt 
I'd already been uh, and seen all the stories. But a serpent of doubt slithered into my info paradise. I began to notice that the net was exerting a much stronger and broader influence over me than my old standalone PC ever had. The very way my brain worked seemed to be changing. It was then that I began worrying about my inability to pay attention to one thing for more than a couple of minutes. My brain, I realized, wasn't just drifting, it was hungry. It was demanding to be fed the way the net fed it. And the more it was fed, the hungrier it became. The internet, I sensed, was turning me into something like a high-speed data processing machine, and I missed my old brain. Now, lots of other things to say about this, but because it's not the main emphasis of the sermon, I'm just going to say a couple of quick things. It is simply true today that people have much less patience for worship than in the past. Less patience for concentrated prayer. Less patience for Uh, Bible reading and serious concentrated Bible study at home, much less patience for worship services services that have substantive scripture readings and substantive sermons. And this is not a good development. And it requires not, I think, a capitulation to this habit, but a rejection of it. And so this is a bit ironic that what I'm saying here is that what distracts us most from worship is how easily we allow ourselves to be distracted. And one survival option would be to cut off the hand of the digital age so that our minds can learn how to read and think again. I would think, not to be totally psychiatrically ignorant, but I would think that many people who struggle with attention spans would do much better to get rid of the iPhone or change the job in order to survive as a worshiper than to go after medications. Not that I have anything against medications. I'm just saying we live in a culture now that does not help our attention spans. And then finally, I'll say another thing that I think hurts our ability to worship or that distracts us from worship is simply theological shallowness. Theological shallowness. How do we worship a God that we don't know? If I do not spend serious time at home, if I do not spend serious time in Bible studies, uh, if I do not spend serious time learning about God and building a theological rubric for thinking about God, then how do I worship God? David Wells, in one of my favorite books, No Place for Truth, he's talking about, quote, the paper-thin piety that so often passes for godliness today the empty and childish stories that are served up as sermons from the pulpit week after week in too many evangelical churches, the casual choral singing that masquerades as deep worship in too many services, as if celebrating good feelings were the same thing as rendering to God his due in wonder, love, and adoration. The truth is, though, that we have emptied ourselves of Christian seriousness in preaching, worship, piety, thought, and service. And so the question here is, how do I worship a God? How do I come to a service like this and worship God correctly? God wants to be worshipped correctly. How how do I at home honor God and bring glory and honor to God in all the things that I do, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, do it for the glory of God? How do I glorify a God that I frankly don't know very well? And a huge distraction in worship is, is the absence of God in it. A huge distraction in the way that we tend to worship God is that God is absent from our worship so that my mind is not connecting with a holy God but on some make-believe God who serves as my buddy or like a weak parent that I beg for treats from. 
So things that distract us from worship in today's world, I would say, are consumerism, short attention spans, and theological shallowness. But I don't think that's the main point of this sermon. What Jesus did here is he goes into the temple grounds, a place where the religious leaders were in charge. The religious leaders of the day had approved of all of these different stalls in the Gentile complex. And Jesus comes in without asking anybody for permission. He doesn't go to the Sanhedrin and say, hey, would it be okay if I did this thing? He just goes right in. And so what he's doing here is he is going over the heads of the religious leaders and he is claiming to have authority over them. This was a massive challenge to the religious leaders of the time. Jesus is uh, claiming a, high, a higher authority. He calls it my father's house. And so he just, he just edits them out of the whole equation. And so there's this huge commotion and everybody is looking at Christ and the religious leaders very reasonably asked him, uh, who, who, are, who are you to do this? They're, you must have some kind of authority. And it seems like they're willing, at least at first, to say this guy might be a prophet. He's a rabbi. He's got some disciples. And he's, you know, interesting guy. Uh, so what, what exactly are you thinking here? What, what is your rationale for doing this? So they, they kind of approach him in this way. John two eighteen. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They don't just kick him out. They're saying, if you seriously have the authority to come in here and nudge us out of the way and do this without even talking to us, you need to give us some kind of a sign that you are the Messiah or that you have this kind of uh, prophetic authority. So show us a sign, they say. Give us a sign of some kind. Prove that you have the authority to do it. And here's the sign that Jesus offered. Verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, it sounds like what Jesus is saying as they are standing there in the temple, the this that he's referring to, the antecedent of this seems to be, you know, where we're standing, this, this, this temple. He's actually meaning this temple. <laughs> he's referring to himself. Uh, but he's worded it in a way that is very enigmatic. And so he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, that's quite a sign. Let's say they decided to take him up on it. Okay, let's figure out how to just destroy this whole place, and let's watch this guy rebuild this thing that has taken 46 years to build. So this is the sign that he's offering them, and, you know, they didn't go for it. It was an impressive sign, but they didn't go for it. Uh, they thought probably that he was crazy and so verse 20 the Jews then said okay it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days but he was speaking about the temple of his body when therefore he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken so similar to last week's sermon about the wedding at Cana there are all kinds of symbols going on here. Last week you had these symbols of celebration, of marriage, of wine, and so forth. And here too you have a ton of symbolism. He, he is giving them a sign, just like they asked. It's just not something that they understand. Uh, they think he's talking about the actual temple, but he's talking about his body. He's talking about himself. So how is it that Jesus is the temple? What Jesus is saying here is, I have replaced the temple 
That's basically what, what he is saying. And nobody understands this yet, but it's going to become clear later. Jesus is going to basically claim that all of the stuff that this temple is designed for, I am now here to do. I replace the temple. I have authority over the temple. I'm here to literally clean it out by replacing it. And there are a couple of respects, there are a couple of ways that Jesus replaces the temple. And the first is that he is Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel. The temple was the place where where God lived with his people. God didn't want to be remote from his people. He wanted to camp right in the middle of his people. And so, Exodus 29, uh, there I will meet with the people of Israel. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. The temple represents God living with his people, God living right in the midst of his people. And so it's interesting that Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus replaces that function of the temple so that God now dwells with his people through Jesus Christ, not through this physical building. Another way in which Jesus replaces the temple is that he fulfills all of the activity that occurred at the temple. All all the stuff that the temple was designed to do is something that Jesus came and did better. He, and so that, the temple is now obsolete. There is simply no need for the temple anymore because I'm here, says Christ. I'm going to clean out all of this stuff by replacing the, the temple. And so the, the, the visual would have been interesting in retrospect. Here's Christ. He comes and clears this place out. He's standing there with a whip right in the middle of the temple It's this dominance where it's very clear that he is the authority of the temple, literally replacing all of the things that the temple was designed to do. He's fulfilling all the temple activity. You see, the temple served a purpose. All the sacrifices, all the priests were there in order to deal with sin. And you can't end the stuff that was going on at the temple. You can't end that without finding a new way to deal with sin. And Jesus is that way. The book of Hebrews says the Old Testament system was only, quote, a shadow of the good things to come. Or in chapter 9, copies of the true things. The temple symbolized. The temple was a symbol. The symbol came first and the reality came later. The temple symbolized all the things that Jesus would do, except that Jesus would do it all perfectly. Hebrews 9.26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The temple activity can be summarized into these functions. First, the mediation of priests who offered atonement so that people could not merely live with God but worship him. Mediation, atonement, worship. Mediation of priests who offered atonement so that people could not merely live with God, but worship God. That was the purpose of the temple, mediation, atonement, and worship. And Jesus fulfills and replaces all of that so that the Old Testament temple was obsolete. We don't need priests anymore because Jesus is the high priest who intercedes between us and God the Father. We don't need substitutionary animal sacrifice anymore because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the priest making the offering, and Jesus is the offering offered. And we don't need a physical building anymore to worship God, because the work of Christ made it possible for God's Spirit to dwell 
inside us. John 14, 17, Jesus says, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus literally replaces all of this temple activity. You see, all of us are sinners. All of us are rebels against God. We have not obeyed God or his ways. We've lived life our own way. And we have to die for that rebellion against God. Death is the necessary punishment for sin. Now, God wants to be with us because he loves us. But a holy God cannot dwell with an unholy people. So he creates the Old Testament sacrificial system all designed to clean people from sin so that God can come and have the, little, the main tent in the middle of everybody else's tent. We're going to go camping together, says God, as they leave Egypt. Let's all camp together, and I want the tent right in the very middle because I love you and I want to be with you, but a holy God cannot dwell with an unholy people, so he's got to fix that, and he creates the Old Testament law in order to do that. An animal dies in the place of a person in order to cover over the sins so that now we're clean, God's wrath has been turned away from us, and God can dwell right in the midst of us. All of that simply as shadows or symbols or copies of what Jesus would come and do perfectly, dying on the cross paying the penalty of death that all of us deserved, suffering the wrath of God, this gift offered to an angry God, turning away God's wrath. He was raised again on the third day. God accepted it, raised him from the dead on the third day. And all of that now, that once for all, crucifixion and resurrection works for all of us so that now God can come and dwell within us. We are not holy people. We want to be with God. God wants to be with us, and he does so when we repent for our sins, put our trust in everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus has done. We put our trust in all of that. That now cleans us from our sins, turns away God's wrath from us so that God can dwell with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. And eventually this great promise of being right in front of him, eye contact with Jesus Christ, worshiping at the throne of God forever and ever, the dwelling place of God is with man. Okay, so all of these copies in the Old Testament are showing us what Jesus Christ would come to do, standing there in the middle of the temple with this whip, the authority of how to be reconciled to God, the authority of how to deal with sin, the only real way to deal with sin once for all. So how does Jesus replace the temple He does it as Emmanuel, and he does it as the one who fulfills all of the copies and shadows of what the temple was designed for. And the final thing, just briefly, is that he does raise again on the third day. His body, his temple, was destroyed. It was killed. It was put to death. The real temple, not the symbol building But the real body of Christ, the real temple, would indeed be destroyed. But it was raised again on the third day. And that sign, (laughs) that sign would be sufficient to prove his authority to do anything he wants to do anywhere on earth, particularly the uh, the obsolete temple grounds. So I think we have a dual meaning here. First, he's cleaning the temple to show the importance of true worship, pure worship. Nothing should distract us from worship. And it's worth spending time thinking about what are the things that distract me from worship? What are the habits that I've developed that make me not a very good worshiper? How can I learn to worship God better? Because there is a correct way to worship God, and it has nothing to do with my preferences. It is about God's preferences. What does God require from worship, not what do I like about worship? So 
I think the first thing we need to do is be thinking about what distracts us from worship and how can we worship God correctly. But overarching all that, here we have Jesus Christ cleaning the temple by literally replacing it. He's cleaning out that whole old system that the authorities had, had just ruined and nothing was working and here he comes and he, and he cleans it all out by replacing it. He is the temple. He cleans out all the old symbolism so that he alone is standing there embodying everything that we need in order to live in peace with God. So to conclude, two things the disciples need to know in order to worship God correctly. And the first thing is that we just need to know that there is a correct way to worship God and it doesn't have much to do with our preferences. Psalm 19.14 Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. And the second thing that a disciple needs to know in order to worship God correctly is that Jesus Christ is the authority and the object of worship. He is the authority, the authority over and the object of worship. He is worthy of our worship because of his many attributes, his majesty. He's worthy of worship just for that alone. But he is also worthy of worship over and over again throughout Scripture because of his grace. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and is worth considering his majesty and his grace as we worship him here in a few minutes together. Revelation 5.13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord God.